housekeeping for today. You guys found Acts 21? You got it? If you don't got it, find somebody that's got it. We're going to be in there for the rest of our time together. And I want to remind us that Paul in Acts 21 to 22 is making his way and making his arrival in Jerusalem. Now, Paul has had his sights on going to Rome for a long time. And on his way to Rome, he's stopping in Jerusalem. He is bringing a gift to the church at Jerusalem that he hopes will kind of unite them again, will bring some unity to them again, that will meet some needs within the church as, as they feel the blessing of churches that they helped start elsewhere, now giving into the ministry in Jerusalem. And so he shows up today in Act, our, the part of Acts 21 we'll be in with this gift. And, and the Holy Spirit has been in Paul's ear reminding him that trouble awaits for him in Jerusalem. Not in a way to prevent him from going, but in a way to prepare him to see his way through. And I, I want to I highlight for us, before we jump in here, that Paul's story is at the highlight of this passage. Paul's story, his story with Jesus, is becoming something that he must tell. And so I simply want to ask us a question before we go into the passage so we can go with Paul as he tells his story. Church, what's your story when you think about it, what is your story? I love, I love when, when, I, when people tell me their story. I love to hear what's important to them and what are the hallmarks that they choose to, to tell me along the way, the mile markers they told me on their story tell me a lot about how they got here, the things they don't talk about tell me a lot. But what's, what's your story? How'd you get here? Now let me ask you a second question to that. Is Jesus part of your story? What's your story with Jesus? See, the big idea today is this. When it comes to your story, there's opportunity to meet Jesus, and Jesus in your story is enough. Jesus is enough. I don't know what you walked in here with today, but Jesus is enough. And so I, I, wanna, I wanna just help you see that in Paul today, that his, his story today is gonna serve as encouragement. It's gonna serve as challenge. It's gonna serve as defense of the faith. It's going to serve as testimony to defend his own character. Just everything that comes at Paul, all he says over and over again is, all I know is this, this is who I was, and then I met Jesus, and this is who I am. That's my story. Again and again and again, you're going to see him just decide, Jesus is enough, Jesus is in my story, Jesus is changing my life. Let me tell you about that. From the easiest to the hardest of times, that's what he's going to talk about. So I want to just jump right in. The, the story, there's, there's a lot we're going to cover today in Scripture, so I'm going to let the story in Scripture, as Luke told it, be the main part of the sermon, and then we'll kind of highlight a few things along the way. You guys found Acts 21. Go to verse 17. We'll have it on the screens for you if you need it. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Now, I usually receive people gladly when they bring me a gift too. I'm just saying. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. Now, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, you know, half-brother. They have the same parents, but, you know, Jesus' dad was God, so they're half-brothers. And all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. Verse 21, they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? 
They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. Now, now let me pause right there real quick. This is James loving Paul. He said, hey man, I know we received you gladly. Not everybody's happy that you're here. There's trouble awaiting you, you know this. And the Spirit is telling him that. Now James is confirming that. There's some people that are riled up, man. They think that you are teaching people that following Jesus is a rejection of the Jewish traditions and the Jewish law. That's what they think. And so he, he has this plan. So he comes to them and he says, they, they, they've been told about you. You teach that to, forsake the, to forsake Moses. Uh, they're zealous for the law. So what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. That's a, that's a Nazarite vow, a Nazarene vow. So take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Now, so this is Paul. James's plan is take these dudes to the barbershop, all right? But it's more than that. It, it would have been customary for, for people under a Nazarite vow to, to have a benefactor, someone who would, who would, part of his offering back to Jesus would be to pay for the expenses of their taking this vow. It was adding value to what they were about to do. So they would shave their head, they would bag up the hair that, 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 was, a, that was paid for in this haircut, and, and at the completion of their vow, they would burn that hair as part of their, their offering, kind of as a, a ritual to, to, to complete the, the ceremony. Like, we, we took this vow, God, we did this for you, and now we're gonna burn this hair. There's nothing magical about it, it's just a ritual to remind them of the start and the end of the vow that they had taken, all right? So Paul took the men the next day and he purified himself along with them and he went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So this is Paul coming in. He said, look, we've done this. This is when it'll be over. Pray for us. This is how we're navigating these next days. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, this is not a prayer of, like, of, of blessing. This is not an ordination kind of laying hands on him to, to, as, as a statement. This is like they laid hands on him like you call the cops because somebody laid hands on you, right? They grabbed him. They, they were going to seize him. Crying out, verse 28, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this Place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed or assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tri tribune of the court that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So he, the tribune, the, the tribune, the, the, the leader under Roman authority comes and he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. I bet he was glad to see that guy come. Verse 33, then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Remember the prophecy of Agabus last week. You'll be bound, hand and foot. He's bound with two chains. He inquired who he was, the tribunes asking Paul, who are you and what he had done, what have you done? Verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. They couldn't even agree on who he was and what he had done. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, 
the tribune, he ordered him to be brought back into the barracks. So it's a lot of he's. Paul does, Luke doesn't follow the rules of phonics and tell us who he's talking about every time he changes pronouns. So you see what's happening. It's the, the tribune is, is trying to make sense of the situation. The crowd's being further stirred. It's chaos. And so he, he grabs Paul, partly for his safety, partly to restore order, takes him in chains to the barracks where he can attempt to make uh, sense of, of this whole thing. So he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. They brought him to the barracks, verse 35. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed crying, away with him. And I don't know about you, but this seems to be thematic in the New Testament. This kind of reminds me of what happened when Jesus came to the Jerusalem. The crowd didn't care what was true. They just cared about what they wanted to happen. So they made accusations and they trumped up charges and the Romans had to get involved and they weren't sure what to do. But all in all, the crowd just is carried away and, 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 and gaining momentum from each other's chaos and away with him, kill him, away with him, kill him, those kind of things, right? And I want to pause right there because it's really easy to read this and get mad at the people of Jerusalem, Paul's kind of my guy. We've been walking with Paul a long time in Acts, and now people aren't being kind to Paul. And I read this, and it stirs me up. I'm like, stupid people. Why do the gossipers get to be the ones to decide what's happening to Paul? Why do the rumor mill get to decide what's happening to Paul? Like, I don't know if these people read it on Twitter, saw it on Facebook, went on Google and, and confirmed all their biases. I don't know what they did, but they had all this unfactual information. That's a joke, by the way, right? Like, social media didn't exist back then. Y'all know that, right? But it's the same thing today. We do it, we just use different ways. Then it was, it was hearsay, and here today we, we go find information that agrees with how we feel so we feel better about how we feel. That's what's going on in this crowd. See, I told you. I told you Paul was doing that thing. You hear it? There's no way those churches in Ephesus and Corinth and all those places are honoring God. They're not even Jewish. You hear it? You hear what they're saying about him? Of course that's why the churches are doing so good over there and ours isn't doing well because they're not doing it right. All right? These are things that still happen today. So I want to point out a warning to us. The crowd is stirred up because of hearsay and rumor and gossip and jealousy and just mean-spiritedness. But here's what's happening. In the name of truth, they're missing the truth. You hear it? See, we often bypass the truth in search of a better story, don't we? It's hard to be happy for someone else sometimes because we want to believe that they've got a circumstance different than us, that like they're just lucky or someone gave them a blessing that we've never received, that it's just harder for people like us to do things like that. Can you relate to that? Sometimes you, you see someone succeeding and you want to know, yeah, but let's wait and see how this works out. I, I, that happened a little quick. Let's see. Or you get all stirred up and somebody calls you on it. So you just start Googling all the words that you feel and you find them on Google and you decide, oh, see, my research says that I'm right. That's called confirmation bias, right? It happened in crowds and it was easy to see, but it happens when we're alone because it happens in here and in here, and it's a little harder to see. But we need to be aware of it. Often, in our search for truth, we actually bypass truth in search of a better story. And so I want to ask, like, how often do we settle for what we have heard? We do this with God's word sometimes, too, don't we? 
Like it's hard to study God's word for ourselves, so we go listen to what someone else has said about God's word, or we, we, we listen to a podcast, or we, we just ask a friend, or those kind of things, but we never go to the source. We're concerned for a friend, but we're afraid we might offend them. Instead of going to the source, we go to someone else, and then they start wondering why would they ask, because they ask someone else, and they ask someone else, and all of a sudden the story builds, and it's not rooted in truth, it's rooted in the search for a better story. We, are, we love to be insiders, don't we? Sometimes we bypass truth in search of a better story. And I want to point out to you all the ways that this Jewish crowd, this enraged Jewish crowd, got it wrong. They got it wrong over and over again. They start saying things like, aren't you the one that teaches Jews to leave the way of Moses? That's not true. Paul even now is paying for others to take a Nazarite vow as he lives out a Nazarite vow. It's not true. He has practiced Judaism. He has taught that Jews should be faithful to Judaism, but also to Jesus. And they, they, they keep saying these things. Aren't you the one that waters down the scriptures and tells people to leave the way of Moses? Well, that's not true. We heard that you took a Greek into the Jewish temple. Just because he had a Greek with him, they assumed that he had taken a Greek into the Jewish temple. Later in verse 37, they'll get it all wrong again, saying, aren't you the Egyptian that has been inciting the people? And so then he answers them in Hebrew. They say, wait, you speak Hebrew? Later on, he answers them in Greek. Wait, you speak Greek? They don't know anything about this guy. They only know what they've heard about this guy. And they've made big-time decisions to incite a crowd, to incite a riot, because they're trying to confirm their biases and to justify their way of life at the, and not lean in to what Paul is really saying and really doing. So this is all going on. I love what Paul does next. He's, he asks for permission to give his defense. Wouldn't you? Um, can I speak? Lawyer, lawyer, right? Somebody's doing that. He asks for permission. And again and again and again, in the face of these allegations and these attacks, Paul simply tells his story. It seems like he really calmly tells his story. I love it. He has such faith in Jesus' work in his life that he simply just says, this, this is who I was. And then I met Jesus. And, and now this is who I am. Did you see it? I'm not the Egyptian. I'm not all those other things, but this is who I was. And then I met Jesus. And this is who I am. And he keeps doing this over and over and over. See, I think, I think he's just trying to say, listen, you guys are missing a key point of this whole thing. All the stuff you're fighting for was supposed to point you to Jesus, and I know him. And he wants to do for you what he's done for me. Do, do, do you remember who I was? I met Jesus. And now this is who I am. I'm going to do that a lot today, by the way, so you don't miss that part. See, often, church, often, lean in on this because I, I got you in mind, I got me in mind on this. Often, we claim to seek truth, but we settle for confusion. We do. From the outside looking in, it seems like these Jewish leaders and these zealous members of the Jewish community are fighting to protect the truth. It looks like they, have do, they would do anything to protect 
the law and the traditions, that they're trying to protect the purity and the integrity of the temple, and they're trying to protect against false teaching, we would say all those things are good things. But in their pursuit of truth, they've settled for confusion. Gossip, rumors, biased research. We have our versions of this today. Sometimes we hear a juicy morsel and we want it to be true, so we take it as truth and we go find something that can convince us that it's not gossip, it's just truth. We feel conviction and we push away from it and we go looking for a better story. Church, listen to me. You do not have to know all the answers. Isn't that good news? I usually get an amen when I say that. You do not have to know all the answers. If you know Jesus, you know the truth. He says, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. In their search for truth, they were missing Jesus. And Paul just keeps telling them over and over, you have these charges against me? You're right, that's who I was. But then I met Jesus, and this is who I am. Wait, you, you think that's what the law does? Let me tell you who I was. Let me tell you that I met Jesus. Let me tell you this is who I am. Again and again and again. Watch this happen. See, I think at some point in our story with Jesus, we have to get to the point where we simply understand And we simply reconcile in our hearts and in our minds, there is no deeper truth than the gospel. Jesus is enough. Somebody say that out loud right now. Say Jesus is enough. I want that to settle. Look at verse one of chapter 22. Let's keep moving. Watch what Paul does next. They've asked him, if he understands the charges against him, they've got him in a safe place where they could hear him talk now. Now he's gonna, he said, can I give my defense? And they say yes, and so he starts his defense. Look at, look at verse one of chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. This is Paul subjecting himself to authority and, and relating to them in a way that they understand. He, he, you, you're, you're in authority over me, so I wanna give my defense. Verse two, when they heard that, he was addressing them in the Hebrew language they became even more part, more quiet. I, I love that part. They're so riled up that they forgot that Paul was a Jew. They forgot that he used to be one of them. Like he spoke the language, he was educated, all these things. Now, side note, it's gonna really freak him out in a minute when he speaks Greek too, okay? Verse three, he says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, in Cilicia. It's like, this is Paul coming in, so I'm from Cilicia, boy. Don't you know? This is where I'm from. But I was brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as all of you are this day. I'm one of you, he says. Now look, Tarsus was highly regarded. It's like when you tell somebody you're from Rock Hill and they go, oh. Right? Is that not how it works? The schools in Tarsus were highly respected. And this was evidence, him being from Tarsus and being a man of means from Tarsus was evidence that Paul was very educated. This would have gotten their attention. 
He was a very religious, very educated Jewish man. Philippians 3, 4 through 6 says that no one was from a better family, from a better tradition, or had a better legacy of faith in the Jewish tradition than Paul. He said, of all the Jews, you can't, you can't get, have a better resume than I have. I studied under the best teacher. I'm from the best place. I was in the best places. I've done the right things. I've been more zealous. I've done all those things. Philippians 3, that's Paul. He says, and none of that meant anything. He's, he's trying to show them, I went to the Harvard of Jew schools. Like, I'm, I'm from Tarshish, and I studied under Gamaliel. You can't do better than that. He's the greatest teacher in the land. Verse 4, you say those crowds are zealous. Look what he says in verse 4. I persecuted this way, the way of Jesus, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. He's like, you remember. From them, I received letters to the brothers. In other words, I had your permission to go do this. I journeyed toward Damascus to take all those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And Paul tells them who he was before he met Jesus. I was one of you, only I did it better. I was smarter, I was more zealous. All of you, you chained me up, I would have killed me. That's what he's saying. Like, you don't understand how many people are in your prisons because I put them there in the name of the law. I was one of you. You guys wrote me letters because I was the one you wanted to send. You think you're zealous? I was more zealous. You think you're rebellious against the way of Jesus? I was more rebellious against the way of Jesus. I was a better Jew, a better zealot. These men can testify. It's putting them on trial. It had been well known what Paul was willing to do. It had been well known how zealous he was to oppress Christians and defend Jewish law and Jewish traditions. Even these elders couldn't claim to be more zealous, much less the crowd. Verse six, as I was on my way and I drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus. There you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Praise God. Verse 15. You will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, call on his name. Do you see it? Paul is in, in, in the most precarious position of his life, and he tells his story. You want to know about me? This is who I was, all that I used to do. And then I met Jesus on the way to Damascus. And this is who I am, and this is who I'm becoming. You, you want to try me legally? The best defense I have is, this is who I was. I met Jesus. This is who I am. This is who I'm becoming. Over and over, we see this. Listen, they're looking for a better story, aren't they? Look, look at this. There is no 
better story than the story of Jesus in our life. None. I make jokes sometimes when I tell my testimony that there was a period of my life from about age 20 to age, I don't know, 30-something. There was like, I was jazzing up my testimony during those years. I was just a preacher's kid who knew Jesus before that, but now I was a preacher's kid who knew Jesus, and now I was a preacher's kid who really rebelled and did a lot of bad stuff, and now I'm a preacher's kid who really knows Jesus. That's, that's, that's my story. And I've stopped saying that so much because I feel like I was giving the wrong impression of the story. I felt like I was highlighting the wrong part. Like the, 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 the nature of my testimony, the power of my testimony is not how lost I was. We have all that in common. The nature of my testimony, the power of it is, is this is who I was. Then I met Jesus and look who I'm becoming, right? That's the best story. They heard Paul's resume, but that wasn't the highlight, was it? Paul's basically, through his own story, showing them that no matter how well they live the law, how zealous they are, how bad they are, or even how violent they are, they need Jesus and he's enough. That he did too and he found him and it's changed his life. It wasn't the zeal, it wasn't the religion, it wasn't the lawful righteousness and doing things the right way, being educated in the right place, knowing all these languages that changed Paul's life. It was Jesus. He's enough. It wasn't sacrifice, it wasn't ritual, it wasn't oppressing the enemy of the church. What gave him forgiveness and a new purpose and a new name was Jesus. See, what you're seeing from Paul is a humility that is uncommon. A humility to face circumstances that he was warned were coming to be uncomfortable, to be bound in chains, just like the Holy Spirit had warned him was coming. And that kind of humility only comes from one place. It comes from knowing Jesus. Church, write this down. Our story with Jesus is the source of our humility. It takes humility to stay with Jesus. It takes humility to sit in conviction and repent. It, it takes humility to seek forgiveness through the efforts of someone else and not the efforts of ourselves. And are you humility to endure pain, to endure oppression, to endure questioning, to endure the change, all of it, it comes from experiencing Jesus in our story. It's a humility to go to Jerusalem under that preparation, to be wrongly accused, to, to even to take the Nazarite vow, like that was crazy. Paul's like, I don't think we have to do that, but I'm gonna do that because you want me to, James? To call, he, Paul gets to write a third of the New Testament, but he calls these guys who they don't even mention their names, elders and father and, and, and authority. He does these things in humility because Paul's humility allowed him to endure all things because he knew that Jesus was enough and the name of Jesus being glorified over the name of Paul was important. See, our story humbles us to show us our needs. See, some of you today, you're, you're in here and you're, I ask you that, story, that, that, that question, like, what's your story? You know your story, and you wish it was different. You're in a chapter right now that you're not sure how it's going to end. You're not sure. Can I just tell you that your story with Jesus might start right there? That today, for the first time ever, you realize, like, what I'm living through, that's not going to carry me through. What I've been doing, that's not going to be the story that rewrites the direction I want to go. But no matter my story, Jesus is enough, and I'm shifting my story to have Jesus in it. I want a story with Jesus, not without. Some of you, you remember when you met Jesus. Remember the humility that it took to confess your sins and to seek repentance? 
That's where your story took a shift and took a turn with Jesus. And to raise your kids the right way in the face of culture telling you different and to, to, to go through work with integrity and to do things the right way, to, to share your faith in places where you're not sure that, you're, that, that, that you know the answers to the questions they'll ask you, all those things requires a humility to simply say, you know what, I don't have to be, but Jesus is enough. His word is enough. His life, his death, his resurrection is enough. That kind of humility elicits a heart of worship. That kind of humility elicits a heart to, be, to desire faithfulness. And Paul knew, like deep down, deep down, like we know, that he was his biggest problem. That he had tried to be his best solution. And it didn't work out. So, so I simply ask you again, what's your story? Is Jesus in it? How's that working out? How's it trending? If we're our biggest problem, we can't be our biggest solution. But in Christ, Paul had been rescued from the futility of his prior pursuits, and he'd been granted a brand new life, and he couldn't stop telling that story. And for us, if we come to the humility of understanding the futility of our other pursuits, we can find Jesus and find that he is enough. In Christ, we can be rescued. And repurposed. My favorite part of all this is that Paul was worse than they had accused him of being. But he had been redeemed to be the messenger of the same hope that he had found. Here's Chad's unabridged version of what that means. This is my translation. When Jesus rescues you, he puts you on the rescue team. This is amazing. This is Paul repurposed. Paul reset. Paul resent. How in the world does this happen? It happens from a humble heart that's simply willing to admit, I need something that I can't provide and that this world doesn't seem to have. And if scripture talks about Jesus this much, if Paul talks about Jesus this much, if the change that I see in others is Jesus, then I want that change in my life too. See, that's how it works. It's the most uneven trade in history. We bring all our junk to Jesus and we get all his glory. We bring all our weakness, we get his strength. See, we come to Jesus out of humility that starts with us admitting that our story shows we need to be saved from it. That's it. If you look at my story, there's a clear place in a green 1997 Silverado that just ran me right up against that truth. I didn't hit anything in the truck, literally, but figuratively, like up against that truth that like my story's taking me somewhere I don't wanna go. I need Jesus. I need to come back to Jesus. When we come to Jesus out of humility, humility that admits our need for a savior, then he brings us in and he gives us his strength. This is Paul living out what he had written years earlier to the Corinthian church. God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in your weakness. This is Paul saying he's, it's Paul saying it and then living it out in Acts 22 that I, I'm weak, but I rest in the strength of Christ. He, he lives this out. Look what else he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. I tell the story about where I was. So that the power of Christ may rest in, in me and upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's humility that only comes from meeting Jesus. 
moving towards him and being changed by him, seeing him do his part in our life. This is Paul understanding that humility drove him to Jesus, and humility has taught him that Jesus is enough to provide the strength to endure and to be faithful. See, the other thing our story with Jesus gives us is it's the source of our faithfulness. Our story with Jesus is the source of our faithfulness. So I just simply ask, do you need to meet Jesus? Has your story unfolded in such a way as that today is your day to finally say, man, I need Jesus. I'm trying, but I'm unfaithful. My story shows ups and downs and all over the place. I've tried everything, and my story is unfolding to the point that I just have to admit I need to be rescued if I'm ever going to be on the rescue team. Christian, when you look around and you look at the story that's being written for your life, do you, do you need the faithfulness to share Jesus with others? Like is, is, your, is your walk with Jesus more about spectator sport like you watch other people do the work of Jesus and you hope that one day maybe you'll be the kind of person that can? So I don't know where you are. If your story's telling you you need Jesus for the first time or your story's telling you you need Jesus to give you the boldness to be faithful, faithfulness and strength comes from him because he's enough. So what about the people near you that are far from God? Your story is the best ammo that you have to tell them about when you found out you needed Jesus and how you met him and what he's doing in your life. See, for me, that works out like this. People on social media, I won't, I'll edit this because my past is full of people who use words I'm not allowed to say from up here. It happens all the time, even after all these years. Chad, call me. I got to know how this happened. How can a guy that I used to know like you become the guy that talks about Jesus all the time like you do now? How does the Chad Merrill I know become a pastor and I simply get to tell him, this is who I was. And then I met Jesus. And this is who I'm becoming. They're like, yeah, but how's that work? Oh, man, you're not listening. This is who I was. And then I met Jesus, and this is who I'm becoming. It's real, man. Jesus is enough. That's why it works. And so I'm calling to you. I'm begging you. I've been praying for you. I'm burdened for you. Christian, live your story. Tell your story so other people can rewrite theirs. Some of you, the futility of your story can end today by just saying, Jesus, you're enough. I need you. So what if, church, what if your story has been perfectly crafted for you to meet Jesus today? What if? What if that's why you're here? What if, Christian in the room, what if your story has been perfectly crafted for you to share Jesus when you leave this place? What if even your pain has been purposeful to show you the futility of your path and humble you to redirect your story to Jesus? What if God is walking other people into your life so that they can share Jesus with you and so that you can share Jesus with them? What if? What if your story is all you need because Jesus is enough? Let's pray together. Father, I'm going to ask these 
folks watching and sitting here a few questions, and I just ask that you'd move in hearts and open hearts today. As you sit after singing those songs and hearing this story, hearing this message today, are, are you very aware that you need to repent of looking for a better story than the gospel? Christian, are you constantly looking at culture and people's affirmation or other things, the spoils, the blessings, instead of Jesus? Have you been adding to the gospel? If you're here today and you're not sure you walk with Jesus, you're not sure how to do that, is there something happening inside of you today that like today's the day I need to give my life to Jesus? Guess what I'm ultimately asking is this, right there alone where you are with your eyes closed and when you get honest about your story, isn't it just time to admit that Jesus is enough? Father, I pray that in this place as we sing, as we contemplate this message, that there would be people that today give their life to you simply by saying, I've been chasing all the wrong things. Jesus, you're enough. I give my life to you. I pray that there would be believers who would shift their focus from things of this world to say, I'm coming back because Jesus, you're enough. Jesus, be enough.